following talk is from New Community. For more information about New Community, check out newcommunitychurch.org.uk. Thanks for listening. Uh, we're tonight continuing a series called An Honest Conversation About, and tonight we're going to be talking about sex. So we're uh, having a, an honest conversation this evening about sex, and I'll be honest with you, the challenge of talking about sex uh, honestly is a little bit tricky, mainly because most people feel a bit weird about talking about sex full stop, especially in church. So let's just get over that for a moment. Turn to the person next to you and say, we're talking about sex in church. <laughs> okay, well, I, I, to be honest with you, um, I, found, I found prepping for this uh, this, this talk and next week we're going to spend two weeks on this subject. I found prepping for this uh, a little bit difficult, to be honest. And it's not because I, I'm, uh, I get embarrassed about talking about sex. I I'm, don't embarrass easily. I'm, uh, there's a list of words that my wife gave me which I was not allowed to say. Um, but she's not here. So, uh, <laughs> I'm joking. I, I found it difficult prepping for, for this couple of weeks, to be honest, because of the broad range, frankly, the, the complexity, frankly, of humanity that we have in this church. Today, I've spoken at different venues and different meetings, and across all of the different venues and meetings that we have as a church, we have people who are virgins. We have people who have been incredibly sexually promiscuous. We have, uh, we have people who have been abused sexually. We have people who experience same-sex attraction and have never acted on it, but, but feel a sense of internal struggle with that. We have people who experience same-sex attraction and have acted upon that. We have people who are married and enjoy a great and intimate sex life and have a real intimacy in their marriage. We have people who are married and really don't. Sex is a massive issue that is, frankly, tearing their marriage apart, an absolute lack of intimacy and connection and an emotional kind of, uh, of cohesion in their marriage is, is destroying their marriage bit by bit. It's like a shadow that looms large over a marriage which is never talked about, never spoken about, never even addressed, never even acknowledged. Some people in our church know, some of you here tonight know what it is to experience the loneliness of lying in bed with somebody uh, next to you who has rejected you. We have single people in our church who are trying to honor Christ and live a pure life. And some of them are doing it exceptionally well. And some of them are struggling with it. And some people are, are struggling to an extent where they regularly give in to temptation. We have people on every part of the spectrum. We have widows and divorcees for whom this is a serious issue. It pangs of pain every time this whole topic raises its head. We have people in our church who are uh, on the age spectrum that sex is but a distant memory and they think it's got nothing to do with them anymore. And yet the reality is it is. It has still something to do with them because there are lots of people further back on the age spectrum to whom they can input and give advice to and share their lives with. We have right down the other end of the spectrum, teenagers who are wrestling with the whole thing of even waiting to the age of consent at 16, let alone waiting until marriage before they have sex. We have parents. I'm one of them. got little kids and I'm, if I'm honest, I'm concerned about the, the culture and the, and the state of our nation in terms of what my kids are growing into. And I'm concerned about the all-pervasive sexualness of our culture that my children are growing into and I really want to see them through into adulthood in the, such a way that they don't make any mistakes, big mistakes that they regret for the rest of their lives. We have those for whom sex 
causes a great amount of pain. Like physically, even the act of it is painful. Those for whom sex, the physical consequences of sex, are massive. And struggling with it, dealing with issues to with sexually transmitted infection, whether themselves or uh, their partner, their spouse. Those dealing with issues, we've got rape victims in our church. Those dealing with unwanted pregnancies, dealing with the emotional trauma of abortions, those dealing with desperately wanting to be pregnant and it not happening for them. We have those who, for whom sex emotionally, the baggage of it, past decisions that they regret, that haunt them, or past decisions that their partners made that have devastated them. We have all of those. We have those people, lots of them as well in our church, who are struggling daily with an absolute chronic addiction to pornography. And some know that this is messing them up big time and are trying to do something about it and just keep struggling. And others who think, well, no, it's, gotten, it's fine, I can cope with it all. And the reality is, you know you can't. It's messing you up. We have that huge range in our church. We have a wide range of people. So how on earth do we address all of those things? Well, what I'm going to try and do tonight is really, uh, in very broad brush strokes, get, try to get to grips with what's going on here in terms of sex and sexuality and how we live in this world, if you're a Christian, but not of this world. And to be honest with you, we need more than two weeks talking about sex, but I didn't think anybody particularly could stomach a 24-week series on the topic. And so we're just going to stick with two weeks on it. We live in a world where everybody thinks that Christians are obsessed with sex. If you've come along tonight and you're first time guest and you didn't know what we were talking about, you're a bit like, I knew it! This is all they spend all their time talking about. Some of you probably came along because you heard that we were talking about this and you thought, they're obsessed with it. I totally want to know what they're thinking. We have people who, who would think, why are you guys talk about it all the time? Why are you so obsessed with it? Why do you care so much what people do in their bedrooms? Why does God care who I sleep with? What's the harm? Why, if it's not harming anyone what is the problem what is your problem in fact actually all of you Christians you're hypocrites anyway you say one thing and yet you're all sleeping with each other anyhow and the truth is I'm just going to be really honest with you this is an honest conversation the truth is Christians have not always done very well on this topic Christians have not really taught very well into this topic our teaching on sex extends to don't do it until you're married you'll feel bad and terrible about it it will be terrible you'll hate it no you won't because sex is good and fun, and you'll probably enjoy it in the moment. But that's not the reason why we say don't do it. We'll cover that in a few moments. We've also not done very well talking about sex. Christians are often judgmental and often self-righteous. And I just want to say right at the beginning here tonight that whoever you are, wherever you're at, whatever your sexual history, whatever your sexual preferences or desires, you are very, very welcome here. Christians have, uh, from the biblically speaking, two main broad commandments. To love the Lord their God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. And we haven't always done very well at displaying that. We've often said those words as Christians, but not necessarily lived them out. And so I just want to say here tonight, and I want us to be a church that lives this out. God loves you, whoever you are, whatever your background, whether you've never stepped foot in church, whether you grew up in church, whether you've been incredibly promiscuous your entire life, whether you've never slept with anyone your entire life, whether you, whatever, God loves you, we love you, and you're very welcome here. But 
just because we've not been very good talking about it doesn't mean we shouldn't. It means we should talk about it properly and honestly. And then the truth is, it's not that Christians are any more obsessed with sex than anyone else. It's just that everybody is obsessed with sex. We live in a sex-saturated culture and society. It's everywhere, it's all pervasive, and it's so very, very normal that we don't even realize it. If you're like my age and up, you'll have grown up with watching Friends on TV. Friends, which hasn't been around for a few years, and if you're younger than me, this is going way over your head. I'm very sorry about it, but it, it was like the TV of my era growing up. It was like the best TV show. It was so much, it was fun. Six friends just mucking around. It was funny. It was amusing. It had lots of fun storylines in it, pretty harmless TV. And yet over the 10 series of Friends, the six main characters slept with at least, and this is not including the ones did they, didn't they, slept with at least 138 different people. Yet if you asked anybody, what's Friends about? No one would say it's a sexually promiscuous show. You wouldn't. You'd say, oh, it's fun, harmless. It's so ingrained in everything. There is now TV adverts and advertising hoardings, all that kind of stuff that just when I was a kid, so not that many years ago, would have been considered pornographic, and now it's perfectly acceptable. Shows like Game of Thrones or whatever would never have been shown on TV when I was a kid. And yet, no, it's just part and parcel of what it is. It's so pervasive in everything. Sex is the issue of our day. It's the issue of our day. And if you're not a Christian here tonight, then no doubt you're looking for answers in terms of, of that's why you're here, I guess, why, what do Christians believe about this? Why do they believe those things? If you are a Christian, you, we need to talk about this because you need to know how to answer some of those questions. And if you want to be a faithful Christian here tonight, then you need to know how the gospel, this good news of Jesus Christ, speaks into every area of your life and not just the religious ones. It speaks into every single area of your life and sex is no different. And the truth is, is that our culture, the one in which we live in, 21st century Britain, has changed at such a rapid rate, even in the last five years, that our very understanding of sex and sexual identity has completely changed. Just in the last five years, it has completely changed. And some of you, if you're younger than me, you, you kind of have grown up in this and you understand this far greater than I do. And if you're older than me, you will struggle more and more to get your head around this. But our culture has changed massively in a very short space of time. So last year, the Sunday Times, earlier this year, wrote an article uh, talking about the new sexual identity that people have. And it talked in terms of it produced a glossary to help people in this brave new world of sex and sexual identity. And it dis- defined what it called as the old sex, like the old way of understanding sex and sexuality, and the new sex. And the old sex included being, people identifying as straight and gay or gay and lesbian or bisexual or uh, BDSM or, or, or cross-dressing or transvestite or transgender or asexual preferences. They were like the old sex. And the new sex, new sexual identity, includes things like pansexual, which means you can be attracted to pretty much anybody, male, female, the androgynous, the gender fluid, the asexual. Omnisexual, which is pretty much the same as pansexual. Polysexual, which is a bit like pansexuality and omnisexuality, but for those who reject the idea that there are only two genders. Demisexual, which is a halfway house between sexuality and asexuality. 
Autosexual, which is a whole other thing by itself. Gender fluid, some people who identify as gender fluid, sometimes feeling feminine, sometimes feeling masculine. It kind of depends more to do with personality than sex. Non-binary trans, which is an umbrella term for those who feel neither masculine nor feminine. There's a term called gray as, which is people who aren't exactly asexual, but only feel sexual attraction in very limited circumstances. There are those who would identify as two-spirit, which is uh, not distinctly male or female, but a third way, a person whose uh, spirit embraces both female and male characteristics. And then there'll be trigender, somebody with three sexual identities, male, female, and any combination of the two. Why am I talking about these things? Why am I raising these? For two reasons, really. I'm trying to help us see and understand the complexity of this topic. This is not straightforward anymore. This is not just like a simple kind of thing of everyone gets what we're talking about. We're all on the same page. This is an incredibly complicated topic these days. And the second thing I'm trying to help us understand is that we're not in Kansas anymore. And what I mean by that, for those of you who haven't seen The Wizard of Oz, is that this is no longer a Christian nation. We now live in a post-Christian culture. And by post-Christian culture, I don't mean it's like we've gone back to some kind of pre-Christian culture where we've sort of, as a society, had mass amnesia and forgotten our Christian heritage and foundation and we just somehow need to be reawoken to that fact. I mean we've moved beyond it. Post-Christian means we have left it behind. And we've got to understand this, what's going on in our culture, because when we're talking about sex, we are not starting from the same place necessarily anymore. If I have a conversation, if you're not a Christian here tonight, if you've been grown up in, in, in all sorts of different, in a different context to me, the way in which even the word sex, what that means, what we mean by it, how we work that out, can be, mean very, very different things. And in our culture, we've got to understand what post-Christian culture really means in order to be able to speak and engage with people who have been raised and brought up in it. Because post-Christian culture, the world in which we live, 21st century Britain, basically what, is, what we've done is we've taken all the good things of a Christian foundation, but we've stripped them of all the cost and the commitments required. And so as a culture, we love all the stuff from, from Christian heritage in terms of justice. We think justice is a good thing. We want equality and fairness. It's a Christian principle. We love the idea of shalom, of peace. We want there to be peace in our nation, in our time. We, we love those ideas, but what we've done is we've, we've stripped them of their cost and commitments and say we want that idea, but we're not prepared to sacrifice our desires and our wants in order to, to get it. And so now we live in a culture where the highest good in our culture is individual freedom, individual happiness, individual self-definition and self-expression. So I am who I decide to be and no one can tell me otherwise. It's all about my pursuit and my happiness and, and you can't stop me from getting that. And so the thing with that is, if that's the highest goal, all traditions, all religions, all received or perceived wisdom, all regulations, all social ties that in any way appear to restrict individual freedom and happiness and self-definition and self-expression, they all must be reshaped deconstructed and destroyed and our culture believes that human beings are inherently good now that clashes straight away with what the bible says we sang a line in our song earlier you are good god when there's nothing good in me our culture believes that humans are inherently good and as we have more freedom and more individual freedom to express ourselves so all of our culture will get better and we think the world will improve as that happens 
And so large-scale institutions like the church are suspicious at best and evil at worst. And for any forms of external authority like the Bible or God or any other people or any institution trying to tell you what to do and what you shouldn't do, they're to be rejected and personal authenticity, being true to yourself, that's the thing that is lauded. And so we live right now in a, in a culture where the primary social ethic is tolerance of everyone's self-defined quest for individual freedom. You've got to be tolerant of it. If it's true for you, it's true for you. And we've got to be, you can't tell me what to do and what you can't do. And we live in this age of tolerance where everyone can be what they want. The irony, of course, of thinking of actually being in a, in a world of tolerance is that it's incredibly intolerant. Because as long as you agree with everybody else, then you're okay. But the minute you say, hang on a minute, I don't agree with that, you're labeled a bigot. You're labeled to be offensive. You are considered intolerant. And let's be honest, no one wants to be labeled a bigot. No one wants to be labeled intolerant. No one wants to have that label. That's like the worst label you can put on someone in our culture today. And this is the context we find ourselves in. We're not in a pre-Christian context. We're in a very much post-Christian context. And it's not a neutral one. The culture in which we live is actively pushing against, aggressively against the word of God and what the Bible says and what Christians have taught and thought for some 2,000 years. And so if you are a Christian here tonight, the temptation in order just to, uh, to appease culture, in order to kind of look like you're not one of those desperately, I'm not one of those who believes that and says that. No, no, no. The, way in which the, the temptation just to tweak a little bit what we think and say and, and believe just so we're more sociable, ex- acceptable is absolutely massive particularly in this area of sex and sexual ethics and identity. Yet if we're going to be re- remain faithful, if you're a guest here tonight, you need to the thing that we're trying to build our lives upon as Christians is the word of God. The thing we're trying to build this church upon is the word of God. And if we're going to remain faithful to what God's word says, then we need to look not to the modern world, but to the ancient paths laid down in scripture. Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16 says, Stand by the roads and look. And ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. See, God, if you're a Christian here tonight, God is inviting you, he's inviting us to follow the ancient paths. This is what this whole series is about, looking at topics that are relevant today and finding the ancient paths. What does God say about it and how can we follow this way? And when we're faced with this issue, sexuality... It's all-consuming. It's so pervasive in our culture. It's so big. It is no surprise that Jesus' regular encouragement to his, to his followers was to have courage. Because if we are going to hold a consistent biblical ethic in, in this area, then you need to have courage. And we need to understand that sex is a key battleground for us. So I'm just going to be straight, clear and straight up as I can. And I'm just going to say this from the beginning straight up. God made us to enjoy sex. He made us to enjoy sex, but in the context in which it was meant for. God created sex and made us to enjoy sex in the context it was meant for, which biblically speaking is in marriage between one man and one woman. No other parties, no other partners, and no exceptions. I could try and hide that from you. I could try and make it seem like it's, that's not the case, But simply put, it is the case. If you've ever picked up your Bible and read it, if you've ever listened to any Christian teaching over the last 2,000 years, you would know that that is the case. And here's the truth. A lot of people hate that statement. 
A lot of people really struggle with what I've just said. A lot of people really, really find it oppressive and repulsive and and it angers them. You might even be one of those people here tonight. Because if that's what sex is between one man and one woman in the context of marriage, then it rules out a lot of things. All sorts of things that the Bible now says are off limits. In fact, everything apart from sex within marriage between one man and one woman, according to the Bible, is off limits. And that's not just a kind of isolated verse. That's a consistent sexual ethic from the Old Testament into the New Testament that Jesus affirms in Matthew 19. And we can say, and we try and do this, and and even Christians I've heard do this kind of thing, say things like, well, Jesus never said about not anything about not having sex before marriage, so that's okay. Well, actually true. Jesus never said anything about not having sex before marriage, and that's because sex before marriage wasn't really an issue in his days, because in those days, the moment you hit puberty, especially girls, you got married. And so it wasn't really an issue before puberty, people having sex, because generally it isn't. It only generally becomes an issue at puberty. And so in his context, in his culture, people just weren't doing that, because you hit puberty, particularly girls, and you got married. So sex before marriage wasn't really an issue. Sex outside of marriage really was. And Jesus spoke very strongly, very firmly against that. Very firmly against what he calls adultery. Sex outside of marriage. And I just want to say at this moment... If that's the biblical position, the only place for sex is in marriage between male and female, husband and wife. That doesn't mean, and it doesn't make sexual immorality or falling in this area unforgivable. This church is made up of hundreds and hundreds of people who have sinned against God sexually and then have encountered His overwhelming love, his overwhelming forgiveness, and his unbelievable restoration. This church is full of people who have mucked up, have sinned against God, who have made mistakes, who have made decisions that they ultimately regret, and then have gone to Jesus and says, if we confess our sins, it says in the Bible, he is faithful to purify us. And this church is filled with hundreds of people who are reformed sexual sinners. This church is full of hundreds of people who have fallen sexually, done things they shouldn't have done, wish they'd never done, then come to Jesus, ask for forgiveness, and he has poured out his loving kindness, his forgiveness, his grace, his mercy, and now we find ourselves restored, no longer facing condemnation, standing pure and righteous before a holy God. That's the gospel. So whoever you are tonight, whatever you come in with, there is, a, there is an invitation from God himself for you to be made right with him. But God still makes it clear throughout his word that anything outside of sex between one man and one woman in marriage is not okay. And there are lots of objections to that statement. There are lots of people who strongly object to Christian sexual ethics. And to be honest, there is lots of misunderstanding about the nature and purpose of sex as well from a biblical perspective. So you might have all sorts of questions. You might come in with all sorts of things. Or you might be facing this with your friends. Or you might need to just need to get your head around some of these. And generally the questions come in all sorts of forms. But generally they come in kind of things like, why does God care who I sleep with? Why does God care who I sleep with? And the reality is, is that Everybody cares who people sleep with, and so why should God be any different? We all, every single one of us in this room, have an idea of what we think is okay sexual activity and what we think is not. We all have a line drawn somewhere. We all, every single one of us, think no one thinks that anything goes sexually. We all have a line where we say, well, that's okay, but that's not. Well, that's okay, but that's not. And where we draw the line is different for each of us, but every single one of us thinks that some things are okay and some things are off limits. We all think like that. 
None of us are really particularly okay with the idea that our partner is, can go and do whatever they want with, uh, any, with anybody else. We go, no, 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 that's not okay. Various different things, not, that's not okay. So we all have this thing where we are actually bothered about who sleeps, about what happens and who sleeps with who, and we just draw the line in different places. So why would God be any different? He just draws the line different to where you do, more, more than likely. And often our objection is not why does God care who I sleep with, but is why does God disagree with what I think? It's more likely our honest objection. And you might say, well, okay, but I now can't accept that teaching. It's just so outdated. It's just so unrealistic. It's frankly, it's just so old-fashioned. You can't possibly have that in this, in this modern world. And if you, that's what you think, I would just, just push back very gently to you right now and, and just ask you to think about this. Our culture has changed its views on all sorts of things so quickly, not least the whole area of sex, It's changed its mind from what we believe now is not what we believe 5, 10, 15, definitely not what we believe 50 years ago. And God, if he's real, if God is real, is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He has not changed. He hasn't changed and he won't change. And yet our culture has changed and it more than likely will change again. We right now think that we've got it right as a culture, but I don't think anybody's so arrogant as to say we will not change. I don't think anybody's so stupid enough to say, actually, we've moved lots in the last 50 years, but we're never going to move from this position and confidently predict in 50 years' time we'll think exactly the same as we think now. I don't think anybody is that confident or, to be honest, that arrogant. And so if you kind of have that issue of saying, well, it's just so old-fashioned, I think we've got to accept that our culture shifts its mind and it changes its views and it more than likely will do again. And so I think logically you've just got to wrestle with is the issue with God who hasn't changed and doesn't change and has had a consistent view for thousands and thousands of years or is it our culture that's got the issue which changes its mind pretty rapidly on things. But really the real issue at stake, the real issue that we've all got to grapple with is what do you think sex is? That's the question for you. You've got to get your head around. What do you think sex is? Because people's opinions and thoughts on sexual ethics are based on deep feelings. They're based on deep convictions about what they think that sex is. And what you think sex is will affect what you think about who can use it and how. See, what you think sex is, the definition will affect whether you think it's okay for this person or that person or these people or whatever. So... If I was to go on the high street now and ask some people who, perhaps British, 21st century, secular, modern people, they would probably say something along the lines of sex is a physical activity between consenting adults. No more, no less. And so if you think that that's all sex is, it's a physical activity between consenting adults, the issue for you is as long as they're consenting and as long as they're adults, they can do what they want. And so I suppose you really what you've got to think about is what defines an adult. At what age? 16? 15? 14? When do we start to feel uncomfortable with it and go, no, they're not adults anymore? But as long as they're adults and as long as they're consenting, it's okay. In our culture right now, it's not okay for adults to sleep with children. And it's not okay for people who don't consent to, uh, to force themselves on others. We have laws against those things, and quite rightly. But generally, apart from that, as long as you're adults and as long as you're consenting, anything goes. So if that's what you think sex is, that affects how you, who you think can use it. If I was to pick us all up right now and transport us to a different part of the world, into a different cultural context, into a different continent, and ask exactly the same question, we'd probably get a very different answer. 
In certain parts of the world, even today, a much more traditional understanding of sex is that it's an act of union between two adults already joined in a lifelong commitment to one another which produces physical enjoyment and marital cohesion and children. And so if that's what you think sex is, if that's your understanding and definition of sex, then obviously the only people who get to have sex are married couples. What you think sex is affects who you think gets to use it and how. And the biblical view of sex is similar to the traditional view, but it actually goes even further. And it's not just an old-fashioned view that we've moved on from. Most Christians, and and to be honest, most non-Christians would kind of know that the Bible teaches that sex is limited and intended for marriage only. But if you ask them why, why sex only for marriage, most people would struggle to understand, struggle to give you a good answer. And marriage and sex, biblically speaking, are intertwined because they are inexplicably linked. You cannot separate them out from one from the other. And you can't separate them out for three reasons. The first is this. There is a divine blessing on sex. Sex is God's idea. It's not our invention. It's his gift. Sex was God's means for filling the earth with the people he had made. He created sex. He blessed sex. And there's this consistent teaching from the Old Testament, from Genesis, where God created everything, including sex. And he says, it's all very good. And he says, it's not good for man to be alone. And then he said, go and multiply, go and have babies, go and have lots of sex and populate the earth. And the whole of the Old Testament kind of sexual ethic all the way through to the New Testament. There's even a book in the Old Testament that's all about enjoying sex. It's called Song of Songs. You should check it out someday. All the way, this consistent thing, all the way through to Hebrews 13 verse 4, which says, let the marriage bed be undefiled or pure. Let it be kept pure. Not made pure, but kept pure. Because sex is not dirty. It's not something to be ashamed of. It's not something to be embarrassed about. It's not something to be awkward in, in, in terms of biblical understanding of sex. Sex is, within marriage is a wonderful gift from our creator God. So there's that first purpose, biblically speaking. The second is this, the purpose of what we might call fruitfulness. See, marriage is the place in which a man and woman are joined together in one flesh. And this one flesh union must include sexual union. You get married, you need to have sex. You're supposed to have sex. And one of the purposes of sex, biblically speaking, is fruitfulness, which means producing children. And so the Bible sees children as a gift from God, and it's pretty clear that a purpose of sex is to result in children. Now, just to be really clear, and I don't want anyone to mishear this. I don't want anyone to get upset or offended by this. If it, saying this, that it's supposed to produce children, does not mean... That couples who are unable to have children for whatever reason, infertility, age, whatever it might mean, it does not mean that their marriages are invalidated. We live in a fallen world. It's messed up. It's junked up. You don't need to look very far and very hard to see that. And one of the consequences of a fallen world is that things go wrong. And I don't really understand why. I don't really understand all of the issues to do with that, but I know this, listen, sex in, a, in its designed form is one of the things is fruitfulness, but it does not mean if you can't have kids that your marriage is invalidated in any way. Nor does it mean you shouldn't have contraception, but one of the primary purposes of sex is to procreate. Sex is a temporary earthbound thing. Why do I say that? Well, because what Jesus says, that there's no sex in heaven. He says there's no marriage in the resurrection in Matthew 22. And so when all God's people are raised to eternal life in Christ, there'll be no need for reproduction, which means there'll be no need for sex, and there'll be no need, therefore, for marriage. Third issue is that sex for the purpose of faithfulness and sacrifice. 
See, sex is not merely a physical act. Sex was designed by God to be good. You were designed to have good sex. And good sex is not just about quick physical release or an experience, but something deeper and more intimate, a connection that goes, merely be, that goes beyond a merely physical act. The original purpose of sex was be- two becoming one flesh, meaning a complete and utter personal union. Sex creates deep intimacy and oneness and communion between two people. And the reason that that's true is that good sex is not simply a matter of emotion, but is always the creation of a covenant covenant, a bond. When you have sex with someone, you're creating this covenantal bond, this, this kind of connection together, biblically speaking. And so when we understand this from a viewpoint of a, from the Bible, sex is a picture of how God and his people relate. God in the Bible is a covenant-making God. It means he makes promises to his people that he will never break. Promises of faithfulness and intimacy and exclusiveness and sacrifice and self-giving love. He will never break those things. He will never step away. He will never be unfaithful. He will never turn his back on you. He will never reject you. He will never move on to somebody else. And sex and marriage is supposed to be a picture of that. It's why Ephesians 5 is so often read at weddings. Ephesians 5 is the bit in the Bible where it talks about Jesus Jesus Christ's marriage to the church. And in that, we see a total and complete giving. He gave himself for the church. He went to the cross for her. He sacrificed for her. And this is the model for our marriages and a picture of our sex lives. That's why God places limits on sex in marriage because it's a picture of the relationship between Jesus and his people. And as a result, it expresses unity and oneness and otherness and faithfulness and sacrifice and surrender that can only truly come when it's between two people exclusively forever. See, Jesus, God, has made a promise that will never break. He's been ever, he will ever be faithful. He will ever be exclusive with his people. And marriage and sex is a picture of that, which is why, biblically speaking, should only be between husband and wife for all eternity, a covenant that can never be broken. And this has a profound impact upon how we approach sex. Because sex in marriage is important. If you're married here tonight, you need to be having sex because marriage is two people becoming one flesh. And assuming, assuming you're physically able to, you need to have sex in order to affirm and strengthen that covenant bond and commitment that you made to one another. And at the same time, you need to approach it with self-giving attitude. It's not as a means of self-satisfaction of this is my needs and you need to serve me and my needs, nor should it be used as a means of manipulation or control. I'll withdraw that, I'll withhold that, I'll control this situation. I'll use sex to get what I want or to punish them because they haven't done what I want them to do. Now, of course, you might be one of these people. Many people find the Christian view of sex repressive. But sex only works in the fullest way God intended for one man and one woman within marriage because marriage is this exclusive, permanent, legal commitment. Put another way, sex is a God-invented way to say to another person, I belong completely and exclusively and permanently to you. 
And you might think, well, marriage is just a bit of paper. What does it really matter? No, 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 it's not just a bit of paper. It's a covenantal contract that cannot and should not be broken. And if you've not got that, if you're not actually married, then you might say, well, I'm totally committed. But reality is you could still walk away at any moment. But in that covenantal contract, when you understand that before God, I'm talking about Christian marriage, before God, it doesn't matter what happens in our relationship. It doesn't matter how many bumps in the road. It doesn't matter how much mess or junk. I am never going to walk away away from you. That's what a covenant is. And that's why marriage and sex is so important. But it's really important to also understand that that is not the goal in life. Being a Christian is not about having sex or not having sex. It's about a relationship with God. It's about believing that God is everything that he says he is, that he created all things and he rules over all things and he sustains all things and he's in charge and involved of all things and he wants a relationship with you. He's not just an all-powerful creator. He's a father who loves his people, who loves you with an everlasting love, who has pursued you, who has demonstrated his love for you when Jesus stepped down from heaven onto earth and died on the cross so that you might be reconciled back to God. And being a Christian is about entering into that relationship and knowing God as a personal savior as a personal friend it's about believing that this world is not all there is that there is a life to come it's about believing that there is a king on the throne whose name is Jesus who rules and reigns who one day will return and one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord and so if you're looking in tonight with questions about Christianity don't get so hung up on the sex thing because it's actually about the Jesus thing And if you're struggling here tonight with issues of sexuality and and issues to do with this and going, I'm just not sure about that. I'm not sure how I can really ever live my life and, and, and not doing this and not doing that. I don't think I can ever live up to that. It's about the Jesus thing. And I'd just ask you a question. If you're struggling with all of this, why are you so bothered about sex? Why do we as a culture care so much about sex? Why is it such a big deal? Why are the stakes so high? Why do we live in a world where people are very much, in a culture where people are very much prepared to sacrifice all sorts of things to get what they want? If you want to be a professional dancer or whatever, you're going to sacrifice a whole bunch of things in order to train really hard to get there. You're not going to behave in a certain way. You're not going to do certain things. You're going to give yourself to this. If you, why? Because you want to go then. You're going to sacrifice. And everyone goes, that's a good idea. Well done. You've done good for that. No one thinks it's weird that you sacrifice certain things to get to where you want to go. If you're a vegetarian or something and you believe for the greater good of of humanity and the state of the planet and animals and things that you're not going to eat meat and you're going to sacrifice that, no one thinks that that's strange. No one thinks that you're sacrificing not eating meat for that. You go, okay, well, that's what you believe. If you don't want to have a car or something because you believe it's polluting the planet, sacrifice all of that. I'm going to use public transport on my bike or whatever it is. And you sacrifice that. We don't have an issue with sacrificing anything in our culture except for this. There's no way I'll sacrifice who I can sleep with. No way. That's way too much to ask. Why are we so bothered? And I think it's because in our culture, sex is regarded as the highest good that there is. The most excellent thing to pursue is sex. And so... The freedom to have sex with whoever you want is regarded in our culture as a right that nobody can challenge. And the truth is, very few human cultures around the world actually have come to this belief, but we have. We've made it possible in our culture to to begin human life without sex. And at the same time, society has increasingly seen it as impossible to enjoy a human life without sex. Just think about films like The 40-Year-Old Virgin and 40 Days and 40 Nights. 
whole idea of 40 days and 40 nights is a guy wouldn't have sex for 40 days and 40 nights, and it's just seen as comical and implausible. The idea of being a virgin at 40 is utterly ridiculous. The idea of, of living your entire life without having any sex is just seen as completely bizarre, even comical. And that's because what we're really dealing with is not sex at all, it's what it means to have a full life. See, sex has become a kind of God in our culture. In our culture, if you're not having sex, it's kind of regarded as the worst thing that could happen to someone. And so sex has become an identity marker that not only joins people together in marriage, but if you're a single person who's not having sex, well, culture may well regard you as something of an outcast. When was the last time you had a, there was a TV series or a film or a movie or whatever where the hero was a celibate person? And actually, the Christian view, the biblical view, is that singleness has always been this incredibly high, rich, full, and flourishing way to live. Jesus never had sex, never married, and yet no one would say he did not have a full and rich life. The Apostle Paul never got married, and yet no one would say that he didn't have a full life full of adventure and, and meaning and purpose. He did some incredible things. Many Christian, um, many biblical heroes, many Christian heroes of days gone by were single. You don't have to have sex to have a fulfilled life. And the culture clash we face is not just about what sex is, but about whether it's possible to lead a fulfilled life without it. And the Bible says, absolutely, yes, it is. And many people in our culture think, no, absolutely, it's not. So where are you listening? Where are you placing your weight? Because it comes right back to understanding our culture. See, because our culture desires the good things that God and faith provide. Our, our culture desires f justice and peace and security and identity and acceptance and love and joy. That's what everyone desires. All, and all the good things that Christianity has to offer. But our society and culture has stripped out all the costs and the commitments needed in order to get them. See, the Bible says that you are made to want those things. You were created in the image of God to flourish and live a full, rich life. But our sin has separated us from God and now cuts us off from the source and the provider of all those things that our heart so desperately desires. And so now, because we still crave those things, we go looking somewhere else, usually to ourselves or to others, to experience it again. But God, who is rich in mercy has made a way for us to experience it again. See, Jesus dying on the cross, Jesus living the perfect life that you or I could never live, dying the death that we deserved, he reconciled us back to God in order that we might experience the fullness of life. And so now the way to access all those things your heart desires, peace and joy and hope and security and contentment and happiness and purpose and meaning and all those things, the way to actually access it, the way to live it out is ironically, we heard it in that wonderful song earlier, is to surrender everything to Jesus, to sacrifice everything to him, not just our sex lives, but absolutely everything. I lay it all down, all my dreams, all my desires, all my plans, all my hopes, all my fears, all my purposes, everything. I lay it all down before Jesus. If you think that the gospel somehow has slotted into your life quite easily without the need to cause any major adjustments for the way you live or your lifestyle or your aspirations, then it's quite likely you've not really started following Jesus at all. 
So the Bible says, seek first his kingdom. And then in the, as you do that, as you surrender everything, something wonderful happens in the economy of God. He begins to add to all these things to us. He begins to pour out his loving kindness to us. And now it might not work out how we want it. it might, it's not a slot machine. You put things in and you get it loads back. Necessarily, it's, it's, a, it's about he now pours his life out into ours. And we begin to experience the fullness and the richness and the depth, something that is way more satisfying than what sex gives us. See, our culture says that in order to have a full flourishing life, in order to be a fully flourishing human being, you have to have sex with somebody. I'd say to you, our culture is lying to us. A search for sex in our culture, deep down, is actually a search for intimacy. We're just going to watch a real short video of someone's story on this topic. My name's David. I am from Sydney, Australia originally. I was brought up there and then moved over here to study theology at the University of Oxford. And now I work in Oxford, live there, and absolutely love it. It's great. And, you know, I had many, many boyfriends when I was growing up. My search for relationships was really extensive. You know, I started going out to Oxford Street in Sydney, which is the central kind of strip of, of the gay world in, in Sydney, trying to kind of go to clubs and meet people. I think love was a rush. Love was like an intoxication with the other person and it it was a kind of escapism really from the context that I was in because I didn't feel accepted, I didn't feel understood. I would primarily define love, now that I'm a Christian, as self-sacrificial love, the kind of love we see on the cross. And that love is a passionate and romantic love, but it's ultimately first about giving yourself to the other and giving yourself up for the other. And that actually in that you find the most brilliant intimacy there is. The moment I became a Christian was incredible. I first experienced Jesus when I was in a pub in central Sydney in the gay quarter when a girl prayed for me uh, and I just felt this most incredible presence come upon me. It was like tingling, like oil on my head and it, it was just this love that I had never encountered before and I was completely gobsmacked, completely dumbfounded that this was real. It wasn't just a concept. The intimacy I experience with God now, it's like any relationship there's maintenance, there's things that need to happen. But I think the difference with the relationship with God is that he is always faithful and I can actually depend on him. And I think that's an incredible security that I have with him that I just wouldn't want to give up for anything. And so I think you can't find that in any other relationship. It's only in that relationship with God that I, I have that and that, that really helps me to love others better love others in a deeper way. Of course I miss romantic relationships and on some level I miss sex, yes. But in another sense, not at all, because actually the search deep down behind sex in our society is a search for intimacy. And when I was having those sexual relationships, I was not finding very profound forms of intimacy. In fact, often that would separate me or distance me from people. So I think I found the intimacy I was looking for in Christ and in, in the church. What I love about being a Christian is that I get to share the most incredible news with people that they don't have to live up to a moral standard, that they don't have to climb this ladder. And I think a lot of people feel condemned and actually I get to share the news with them that they're not condemned when they 
receive Jesus and they turn away from sin or their old life, they, they're completely accepted, completely loved, completely brought into God's family and that there's no condemnation anymore. I love that. <laughs> The search for sex in our culture deep down is a, is a search for intimacy. And the search only ever ends not in any other relationship, not in any human thing, but in Jesus. Many people in our culture, the idea of following God costing you your sex life is too high a price. But when you encounter Jesus for who he really is, you see that, yes, this is costly. But it's not just sex I lay down, it's everything I lay down, and he's completely worth it for following Jesus. I give him my whole life. I lay it all down, all my dreams, all my desires, everything, because he is worth it. And what I gain is something far greater. I gain God himself. If you're searching for intimacy and, and, and craving that full life tonight, I'm going to just say to you, stop looking where culture tells you to look, where our world tells you to look, because it will never satisfy You'll never satisfy. Come to Jesus. If you've messed up in this area, hey, join the club. There are literally hundreds and hundreds of us in this church who have all sinned. In fact, to be honest, every single one of us has. Jesus in, in, in Matthew 5 says, if you even lust in your heart, then you've committed adultery in the eyes of God. Every single one of us has done that straight up guilty. And those that claim they haven't, well, there's another sin that's called lying, <laughs> which you can just deal with. But every single one of us who has come to know Jesus, who's put our trust in Jesus, just like David in that video, now walks free. No condemnation, no guilt, no shame, no sense of I wish I had or I wish I hadn't have done. No sense of, oh, I've just mucked things up completely. But knowing absolute, pure, unadulterated forgiveness, grace and mercy that we don't deserve and we cannot earn from a God who is perfect and righteous and holy in every single way. And now because of what Jesus has done and the fact we put our trust in Jesus, we repent of our sins, we turn away from them, we say, Jesus, you really are who you say you are. We confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord. We are now found in Christ and God the Father now looks on us and sees Jesus. You're clothed in robes of righteousness if you are in Christ. There's nothing more wonderful, nothing more freeing, nothing more amazing than that. Whoever you are, whoever you walked in here today, God loves you and he's calling you to turn around from your old ways and trust him for a better one. Thanks for listening to this talk from New Community. For more information about New Community, check out newcommunitychurch.org.uk.